Welcome to episode three of the Adam Chernoff Show, the podcast that gives betters a glimpse of what life is like for those on the other side of the betting counter. Each episode, I interview someone influential in the gambling industry that is doing something I think everybody needs to know about. For my third episode, I interviewed Daniel Weston, the author of Mastering Tennis Trading and owner of TennisRatings.co.uk. Dan is widely regarded throughout the industry as one of the best tennis bettors on the planet. His daily trading sheets are used by many throughout the industry. It was large in part because of Dan that I got into trading sports on Betfair and betting tennis throughout the year. His book, articles, and trading sheets helped me see sports betting in a completely different way and aided me to find profit on the tennis courts. I regard him as one of the most influential bettors in the industry today. On this episode, I talked with Dan about his early years making a living as an advantage slot machine player, how he started tennis rating, what stats he holds highest, players to watch for in 2017, as well as get predictions from him for the upcoming Australian Open. This episode is jam-packed with invaluable information you're not going to hear anybody else. You'll want to listen to this episode a couple times as we near the beginning of the tennis season. Enjoy this chat with a phenomenal guest, Daniel Weston. Dan Weston, thanks for taking the time to join the show. Been waiting to talk to you on the phone for a long time. I know we've had a lot of conversation through text and email, so it's great to have you on and finally put a voice to the name. Hi, Adam. Yeah, really, really looking forward to doing this. Appreciate you taking the time, as always. Is legendary, fair to call you before your name, in terms of what you do for tennis betting and, and how popular and successful you've become, or, or is there something bigger that we should refer to you as? No, definitely, definitely. I'm not, 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 not nearly as as legendary. I guess, I guess I like to think of myself as a bit groundbreaking in terms of looking at new data and the new angles of looking at stuff. But I, I guess, I guess, um, sort of like, I guess I'm, I'm kind of a master of a niche would be more, more, more appropriate and legendary. I'm a little bit, little bit more humble than that. But <laughs> if anyone wants to call me legendary, then they can feel free. Well, well, we'll have some people beg to differ, but. For now, for now we'll go with we'll go with it. Um, before we get into tennis ratings and your book and everything that you do on on the website, let's go back to the start and talk about how you first got into betting and and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so basically, um, when I was I was studying at university when I was uh, eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, uh, doing a degree in accounting and finance, and uh, met a guy um, who showed me the ropes a bit on on slot machines, which um, I don't know if anyone uh, any listeners familiar about the concepts that are involved in that, but basically. Uh, there's there's some in the UK particularly there's a lot of angles that you can look at to to beat beat slots which primarily um, focus on like expected value calculations and I know that there's there's a few websites around which have got some some old uh, techniques that people have used to beat the, the stuff in Vegas using the advantage gambling methods and um, yeah, so I did that for for a while. Uh, then then kind of looked at into new opportunities. Um, played a lot of online poker full time as well prior to the the ban on US players, and 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 that in its peak was was really really decent uh, income. And even even at like a mid stakes income, you could make some really decent money, especially with a good rate back deal. And um, there was just like a ton of bad players as well, so you could you you could exploit the bad players so so easily. Um, then the US players had a lot of difficulties depositing or playing, 
and then the the player pool became a lot more advanced pretty much overnight because um, the the bad American players that we were mostly targeting they disappeared because the only the only American players who were still playing online were the ones who kind of like looked for ways around the system. And, um, of course, they were the winning players because they needed to find a way to look around the system rather than the losing players who kind of just, like, moved on and just ended up playing roulette or something like that instead. So, um, yeah, did that for a while and then um, moved on to sports betting and trading after that. So let's go back for a second. You made a living on slot machines. Now, to a lot of people, that might sound difficult because for the most people, slot machines are obviously a losing proposition. How did you go about finding or identifying the machines which had the value without going into huge detail, yeah. but was it difficult to find those machines? It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, like, when I first started, I, 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 I got taught by one guy. He um, showed me the ropes and I kind of, like, learned a bit more, bumped into a few other people who did it. Some of them some of them were sort of keen to chat and discuss other methods and stuff. And so you, you kind of built up a bit of a knowledge database like that. Um, the the machines that I was playing primarily at the time were in like bars in the uh, UK pubs. Um, the pretty much every pub and bar in the UK has at least what, one slot. Some some of them have like six or seven in them. So even if you were I could only master maybe like ten percent of the the games out there, it wasn't it wouldn't take you long to find one uh, bar with the right machine in, which was quite, quite sort of those those sort of ten percent rule was quite quite appropriate most of the time and um yeah uh obviously once you found the machine in the bar then you can go and do it and then you can come back like three days later and someone's lost a ton of money in it and you can go and do the same thing again so once you've once you kind of got got the sort of database of what machines are in what pubs it really wasn't that difficult so was that a lot of driving around and a lot of traveling involved in that yeah 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 um there's probably not that many towns in the uk that i haven't been to obviously it's um, a smaller place than canada in the us um but yeah there's, there's not many towns i haven't been to so then another thing that interests me about this is obviously the biggest uh struggle for many betters who do this for a living full-time is dealing with the emotions and and tilting yeah. and everything along that line the slot machines are built sort of to prey on people who who can't deal with that. We're fighting the urges of, I guess, chasing or dealing with just how the games naturally are when you're sitting in front of the machine, putting in your money and, and hoping to get that win because you know it's going to pay out. Was was that difficult to deal with more so than, say, poker or sports? No, it was actually, to some extent, easier. The reason why I say this is because obviously when you're playing poker online, live, whatever, you're you, you sit down you sit down at a table and you can play for a uh, undefined amount of time, and it's up to you when you quit. Uh, the expected value could still be at the table; it may not be on the table, but you, you're the one who has the sole discretion of when you quit. Whereas when you play slots, if you're playing them optimally, which I always did because kind of discipline is obviously a key element to any kind of gambling um there's a clear defined entry point and there's a clear defined exit point so uh giving you an example of um a really old machine that, that you'll never find anymore so basically um you could play a machine on like 10 pence stake which is obviously the really low stake and um you could put two pounds in it so you get 20 spins and the number reel on the machine would spin even when it wasn't in play from the high low gamble and the number reel, if it spun certain numbers, would indicate that the machine was paying out. 
So you could invest like two pounds in the machine maximum. And if it hadn't spun the required number that you needed to, to see before you played the machine and took it on, you know, got involved in a, in a big gambling proposition, um, then you would just walk away and lose two pounds and, and move on to the next place. I so find it, was, it, it was, absolutely fascinating. I mean, yeah, it was, it was really hard to lose more than that. I mean, obviously, yeah, you get some sort of like bad variance spots, but variance on slots is like way lower than than other forms of gambling. I, it's just incredible. And so, you, how long did you do that for before you got into playing poker? Well, a long time. I think about eight eight years, maybe. But on and off, I've revisited it as well. Like for example, like last year, I got a call from a guy. And um guy I've known for many, many years. And um, he told me about a method of working out an exact expected value calculation on a, on a slot, which is on the um, in bookmakers, uh, like you know, on, on the streets of towns. In England, it's very different to other countries. There's, there's hundreds of bookmakers in, like, in cities. So like, every street corner, there's a, a betting shop. And... Um, Every single betting shop's got four terminals in them. And you could go and, if, if the expected value was there, you could go and do all four terminals. They're not linked. So if, if, even if you've smashed one of them for a, for a lot of money, you can, you can go on the terminal next door and do the same thing if the value's there. So that was really good. That was a really big earner. So I'll, I'll still, I'll still have a look at stuff like that if, if, if the opportunities are there. But, but obviously my main focus is on, on trading and my business. So, um, unless I get an unbelievably good opportunity like that one particularly was, and then I'll then then I'll stick to that. So let's get into obviously the trading and, and why you're here to talk about the tennis. As much as I could talk about slot machines all day, the, the tennis is yeah. obviously the big earner. Uh, TennisRatings.co.uk is your website. Okay. Mastering yeah. Tennis Trading is your book. When did yeah. you first get into trading? And when the book was uh, book was published in 2012, correct? Um, well, I self published it then. But it was, I think, published in 2014 in um, in paperback. And the website was pre-existing to that, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I set the website, I think, around that sort of time as well, start of 2012. And then um, I wrote the book, which I originally just sold through the website as like a PDF. Um, and then um, I, I contacted a publisher who I knew, knew, knew sort of published some financial and, and other trading books, and uh, they were interested and uh, took the book on, um, I think in 2014, towards the end of 2014, I think it was. And now it's available in paperback as well as um, an ebook that you can get on Amazon or anywhere like that. Now, your book is very stats-focused and numbers-based. You obviously have... A plethora of numbers and stats compiled on your database. How long did it take to put all of that together, and what kind of work went into it? I imagine many hours. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. That, that would, many hours would probably be a, a big understatement. Like I've put tons of um, hours into it. I'm not blessed with the the best skills in terms of um, computer programming and scraping and stuff like that. So I have to do a lot of manual entry myself. But um, bizarrely enough. I think that the playing like eight eight tables online poker at the same time um, has kind of helped me multitask quite well in that way, and I can kind of process the data a lot faster than the average person, which which helps me out obviously in that. So in why that tennis? Did were you a player growing up? Were you involved with the sport, or did it just appeal to you from a betting aspect? No, not really. Um, 
I played a bit of school, but not not seriously, definitely not competitive level or anything like that. Um, basically, I always enjoyed watching it on TV, and um, but my main sports probably were, were soccer and um, and cricket growing up. But but tennis, like I said, I've always been a sports fan. Tennis, I always love watching it on TV, and um, and then um, basically I realised that there was kind of like a lack of data for on, regarding tennis. And realised that perhaps it was a, a lot more niche and uh, sort of unexposed as a market compared to, say, soccer, which is like a huge market on Betfair and, and probably a lot more efficient soccer as well. So how long did it take you after compiling the database to become as confident in the tennis bets that you were making in comparison to the slots, which you did for many years, and the poker, which you did for many years? Was it a quicker sort of click for you in terms of, of betting the tennis in comparison to the other two? Well, initially I started betting more on soccer to start with, but it's obviously how I realised that there was there was you know, it was more more efficient, uh, quite an efficient market. So when I when I, met, when I moved to tennis, I had sort of bought built up some skills from from uh, the time I'd invested in soccer, and I built um, a um, the ELO style model for for tennis and graded the players and and managed to use that to calculate the the um, expected pre-match price for for a player and then um i placed the bets and it did well from the start really um and the the main challenge was just filtering more players into the database so i could cover more more matches and then work on challenges as well as as atp and wta and it didn't take that long before bookmakers were quite keen to to restrict my activities now, you, you said that there's a lack of tennis data, and I think anyone who's bet it, uh, aside from a couple different websites, will realize that that's true in comparison to, say, soccer or American football yeah. and things like that. When it comes to setting odds for American football and basketball, like I did for five years, uh, I, I relied a lot on power ratings, and I think that that's very popular. You mentioned ELO-style rankings. Yeah. Is, is that a viable form of betting on tennis long term for most bettors or do you suggest that they do seek out these numbers instead okay so basically um it is a, a good question um the problem is is that it, with any kind of statistical uh model uh you're at risk of a lot of external factors so i guess my 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 preferred approach which is something that I, that I do now is that I have like the base model price which is done from from the for, uh, completely model driven and then I have some sort of soft factors that I add in afterwards and then those soft factors um, are all quantified but but a model would would dis, dis, a pure model would disagree a little bit on, on, on the eventual price that I find so for example um, if um, Player X is playing player Y, and player X is is recovering from an injury. He's been out for like three months, and he comes back. Then, then my my soft factors will then adjust my model price to take into that account. Whereas on a basic like ELO model, you're gonna be betting on the guy who's injured because the price is gonna be representing value because the bookmakers have obviously know that he's been injured, and so the problem then sort of combines great greater because if you're using like a Kelly uh, criterion type style um, staking plan, then your mistake is compounded, and you're staking a lot more on a player who's uh, just come back from injury, for example. 
So then when you first began, what was your sort of go-to strategy? And is it still one that you can use today? Or does it constantly <laughs> change and you need to adjust? When I first started, it was just purely like the model. And I did good, uh, about 3 4% return on investment, which is, which is absolutely fine for tennis. But then people need to appreciate is that at that point in time, bookmakers made more mistakes. They were slower to update their prices. I mean, you, you, you could go and get up at like 6, 6 30 in the morning UK time and find that the bookmakers hadn't adjusted their prices from, from the night before whereas they don't tend to make that big mistake anymore. And if, if you do exploit that, then you're going to be, be restricted because that's only going to be the small books that make those mistakes. So now, I mean, with every bookmaker being such, or, or when you take Betfair, 365, all of the big mm. shops in the UK, they all have these giant trading rooms that control everything in play. But a lot of that is sort of number and time decay driven based on where the match is versus where it started and where it's going to finish. And there's not oftentimes a lot of uh, sort of influence in terms of personal opinion put in by these large trading yeah. teams. Yeah. Is, yeah. is it harder to beat it, the markets now? Like you said, there used to be that gap overnight where you could wait and you could take advantage of the lines. Is it harder now to beat it pregame than it is in play or vice versa now that there's sort of different focus on the different aspects, seeing as the turnover from each is, is so significantly different? I think that it's obviously possible to beat them in, in both both areas, pre, pre-match and, and in play. My, my, my personal preference, preference for my own activities mainly my focus is on in-play because I've created so much in-play data compared to, to the average average trader. The, the, um, I feel that, that, that obviously that provides me with a an edge over the average person and, and the vast majority of the market. Um, but you, you can do really well uh, betting on ready pre-match. I mean, like my models now is, re- is returning like three or four percent, uh, three to four percent uh, return investment for men's and women's tennis um, against Pinnacle um, at the time that I send out my, my spreadsheets on a daily basis, basically yeah, based on the Pinnacle price at the exact point that I send the spreadsheets out. And, um, on handicap markets, also the, uh, I've done a lot of research on my, especially in men's tennis. Uh, historical research shows that the players that, that I've recommended as value um, beat the pinnacle closing line on the game handicap, uh, the average standard game handicap line by about five percent as well. So you can do well pre-match, you can do well in play, really. Obviously, the main the main factor is is what you your personal circumstance. So, for example, if you haven't got that much time to to devote to in play trading, and if, you know you've, maybe if you've got a job and you're using looking at, at betting as a second secondary income, um, then pre uh, pre match stuff is going to be more appropriate to you. Some countries obviously have sort of the restrictions regarding um, in play betting as well. So so kind of your but your default option has to be pre match betting. So it really is uh, different things for different people. I think as well is is pretty important. Your bread and butter and, and your biggest selling product are your in play sheets, and they yeah. are what I consider to be some of the best tools for any better to use any sport across the board. I found them to improve my game and the way that I look at betting, not only tennis, but any sport in general, uh, extremely influential. And I highly recommend anyone who's looking to bet tennis to go over to tennisratings.co.uk, sign up for a subscription and see how it can change your betting. Uh, Being the creator of them and dealing with them every day, 
Are there some va numbers on those sheets that you value more so than others? And if so, which ones are they? Yeah, definitely. So, so obviously the starting point has to be the looking at the model price versus market price and looking at any discrepancies which are um, available in the market based on based on my model. And that's that's the natural starting point for anyone, whether they're pre-match better or, or an in-play trader. So pre-match better, obviously, they're going to be looking at, at those discrepancies with a view to, to placing those bets as a uh, pre-match, whereas an in-play trader is obviously going to have to take that into account because if, um, like you said earlier, it's quite the in-play markets are quite linear. They're derived from time decay or, or um, you know, this current scoreboard. If a player is, is valued pre-match, then it's almost or there will almost always be value in play as well because the market it moves from different factors uh, different factors to that uh, uh, it's based on the original it's based on the original pre-match price and then the other factors like say time decay or, or the current scoreline from that so the model versus market is obviously the most important thing from an in-play perspective uh, i look at uh, projected hold percentages a lot so um for example, um, Andy Murray, if he's playing against John Isner, his projected hold is going to be like 95% because he's playing against a weak returner. Where if he's playing against Novak Djokovic, it could be as low as 70% because he's playing against like the best returner in the world. And there's a lot of other factors that that, cut, that, that influence the um, projected hold percentages as well, such as the court speed and um, just to like say the, the serve, serve and return abilities of, of of the two individuals on the court. So that's important as well because it's really important to be able to to profile a match and look at it and say, well, this match is going to be serve orientated, this match is going to be return orientated, because you can build your trading strategies around around that particular those particular numbers. And then I also look at a lot of other data as well, such as um, uh, lead loss and recovery. Uh, percentages, so how how often a player loses a break lead, how often they recover a break deficit, and that's that's what I'm working on this afternoon. Funny enough, just before a few days before the start of the season, I'm just adding some new players into my database. The the sort of the the new players, the young prospects who have just broken into top 100, I want to add them on onto my database, like players like Karen Kashanov, uh, Daniel Medvedev. Uh, Yoshihito Nishioka, just just getting them into my database already for the new season. So I've got all their percentages that they lose leads and, and recover deficits as well. Because that's that's such a great angle for in-play traders because you can you can see which players are the vulnerable front runners, who, which players give up when they're losing, um, and which players really fight fight till the bitter end to try and get back into the match. So so that 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 sort of data is obviously very useful for formulating in-play strategies as well. So two questions I have from that. The first one being, do the projected holds have any correlation to the over and in the, in the matches? Like, can you are those in, like two players, for example, with high projected holds? Yeah. Is there any sort of correlation that you have or records that you've run where if it's over X percentage for both players, then it's suggested to bet over or, or vice versa with the under? Mm. Well, totals isn't something that I specialise in. I definitely don't, don't devote as much time to totals as other areas. But what I will say is that, that a match involving two players with a high projected hold percentage, so let's just pluck two names out, Isner versus Karlovic, for example, two massive servers, two four returners, um, they have a, it's a slight they were slightly more likely to end in a 2-0 scoreline rather than 2-1, but the games, the, the, each set is likely to have a higher total. So 
the individual sets have a higher total of big servers, but there's slightly less chance of there being three sets. So a match between like two returners, say, I don't know, Rafa Nadal versus David Ferrer, it's more likely to go three sets, but there's more likely to be like a dom- dominant set victory, like a 6-1, 6-2, double break type set win um, when when um, there's two returners. But like with two big servers, the likely set scoreline is going to be like 6-4, 7-5, 7-6 type spots. So people may often mistake two good servers for a good overbet when in reality it could be the other way around, is what you're saying. Yeah, and, and also the bookmakers in this particular spot aren't stupid. But, so if, if Isner's playing Karlovic, they're going to set the line real high, like 26 or something something like that, depending on depending on like the, the conditions of the, of the tournament. But that's going to be that sort of line. Uh, and, and they're going to they're gonna say, well, basically, you're going you're gonna, to... Um, Maybe I say over twenty, over twenty-five point five, or over twenty-five might be the line. And you, you're thinking twenty-six is going to be uh, two sets, uh, seven, six, seven, six. Um, you get a push off seven, six, seven, five. If it's twenty-five, the line's twenty-five, and or, or if it goes three sets, you're basically guaranteed to cover pretty much. So you're, you're yeah, they're not stupid like that. Whereas a standard line with the same SP for the two players might be like twenty-one point five or twenty-two for like two average players, you know. That's interesting to see because it's kind of the opposite of what you would think. And there's, I guess, I've seen you write a lot about the first set tiebreak props, which you really enjoy betting from the looks yeah, of it. Yeah, because that's where the two servers may be more inclined to find value in the market. That's why. That's why I would look at like two two big server matches. But also, the main area where that that particular market offers value is because bookmakers don't uh, have a good idea about which courts are quicker than others, which, which, which venues have quick conditions. So um, that was going to be my second question yeah, was, yeah. do you feel that bookmakers over or undervalue the court speeds and different surfaces and but, how I mean, big, how big of an advantage for the players is there when you're taking that into account and being accurate with it? For gamblers, if you can quantify that, then that's a big advantage. And that's something that obviously that I offer in the, in the spreadsheets and the projected whole percentages are, have that built into them already, so so that's and that's based on the sort of historical whole percentages from from that venue over a period of time compared to the this mean deviation. So, um, basically, bookmakers I think they're too generic with their their particular um, sort of analysis of court of court conditions. So they just think okay, grass. And they don't realise that, that perhaps Queens is is faster than Newport, for example, and um, that, and, and they make big mistakes like that. So, so for example, like a, an average server playing against a big server at Queens will have um, a much bigger t- chance of a tiebreak than if that match was played in Newport. Do you think that they're weak on their lines in terms of adjusting for court speed simply because there's not enough data, or because they just don't value it enough? To, uh, or, or they don't believe that the better's valued enough that it's going to account for a big difference in the market price. My personal opinion is that the data is available because I, I can get it, I use it. Uh, my personal opinion is that they're ignorant. So um, interesting because they're too, they're lazy. They don't they don't push enough of their resources into odds compiling. They push more resources into profile and better strategies. And um, a lot of them will. will um, Take the you know, the market leading bookmakers prices or or Betfair prices and just adjust that with a bigger markup. Pro, pro, put their profit margin onto the Betfair or Pinnacle price, for example. Uh, and a lot of them are just lazy, and a lot of them, particularly in the UK, are just um, 
social media advertising mouthpieces that they're trying to be the punter's friend and they're always advertising on TV and trying to, uh, you know, trying to put like amusing memes on, on Twitter or, or just trying to, trying to amuse people. And then that's their way of getting free advertising. And they just want the recreational losing punter who's going to like stick a tenner on a really bad, bad bet that they've got 25% profit margin on. And they don't, they don't, they don't put their resources into odds compiling anymore. The bookmaking landscape has really changed where, where, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago plus, you're, you, you, there was a lot more sort of, education in bookmaking whereas i think that's gone out the window to a large extent these days with a lot of companies now that's interesting because in north america south america there well more so in north america especially in the united states as you well know with poker there's very limited options for people in the states to go and place a bet on sports so the bookmakers here <laughs> are somewhat worshipped and cherished because it's the only option for many of these betters yeah. Whereas in the UK, it's it's so far ahead of the states and so advanced that the script is sort of flipped. And now, just from reading and talking to people who, who I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, it seems like there's recently become this large hate for many of the bookmakers. And I think that's driven by educations of the betters, that they're just becoming smarter and they know more about how bookmakers work. Are there any bookmakers that in the UK that people have a respect for that try to counteract all of this? Or is it basically all of them versus all of the players? Well, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I, I write for them, but um, and, but you can't even get access to Pinnacle in the UK currently, although hopefully that will change in the future. Um, but Pinnacle are by by far the best in that respect. They, they're they the most transparent bookmakers because they advertise the, the, the amount that you can put on a, a given line and um account restrictions don't happen so and and the, and their and their margins are pretty pretty good as well they're they're way for thin compared to to the other the other sort of high street bookmakers for example who who their 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 markets might have like ten fifteen twenty percent profit margins whereas pinnacle you're looking at like a couple of percent maximum on tennis match for example you write for Eastbridge, which is a sports broker. Well, yeah yeah. Is that becoming more, or brokerage becoming more and more popular? And is that sort of the future for professional players in the UK? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know a lot about the brokerage type business, but from what I understand, um, it, it provides um, a better sort of opportunity to to, to use um, to use some other bookmakers to increase their options in that respect, and obviously to hold all their money in one place as opposed to being sort of spread around lots of different online accounts, which obviously is is useful as well. Um, those sort of services, I would imagine, yeah, they're, they're gonna they're gonna be pretty popular, and particularly whilst um, whilst Pinnacle is unavailable to UK citizens as well, that's 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 only going to continue. I, I find the difference between the two industries in really two continents that aren't that mm -hmm. far apart in terms of every other aspect of daily life, how they can be so completely different. So anytime I get a chance to talk to someone who's a professional like yourself from over there, I always find it interesting just to, to get their take on the industry. Um, yeah. But getting back into mm. sort of the sheets and the tennis aspect of it, um, coming into January, obviously a new season uh, with everything going on in Australia, Asia, mm -hmm. uh, the Middle East. Is there some strategy that you can suggest the betters to employ in these couple months to look at something different. I know you've written articles in the past about um, Americans traveling 
to the mm. other side of the world and, and travel playing a big aspect in it. Is there something that you look for specifically and you can recommend for other betters to keep an eye on this early in the season? Well, adopting a, a blanket strategy is not necessarily something that I really, really endorse. But I can definitely give some sort of general pointers to to people looking to, to, to sort of do some further investigation. Um, so, like I said um, in previous articles, like what you just mentioned about the Americans abroad traveling, uh, especially the older Americans, the Isners and Quarries. And so, although Isner doesn't have a bad record in Auckland, funnily enough, it's an event at the start of the season. Um, Quarry in particular does not travel well. And um, as as much as I'm sort of loath to say it, I think that that's kind of a mentality thing with a lot of Americans that they don't like traveling. Uh, maybe that might change with the young players coming through, but currently that's something that, that I do bear in mind a little bit. Um, young players at the start of the season, I just wrote an article yesterday which looks at the data behind um, backing young players in the, the first couple of months of the season when they've, they've had yeah, the, the pre-season and they've been able to train and um, work on some new tactics and strategies. And... Um, yeah, they, they've got they've got a good, uh, sort of a clean break for a couple of months that so they can really improve, and the young young players uh, have a pretty decent record at the start of uh, seasons first first two months January and February, they've done pretty well as well. And also, what worth bearing in mind is that a lot of the um, Australian uh, warm up events, so uh, particularly Brisbane and Sydney, are um, played in quite quick conditions. Temperature's going to be very hot, and um, the courts courts generally play quite fast, so will benefit uh, serve orientated players over return players, return return orientated players. But then you've also got the tournament in Chennai, India, and that's uh, typically a very slow uh, has very slow conditions in India, and um, that benefits more sort of return orientated players uh, as opposed to servers. So really, if you're a, if you're a uh, big serving tennis player. There's really no excuse not to play the the Australian warm-up events as opposed to Doha or, or Chennai because obviously you've got the conditions that suit you and you've, you're in Australia already. You don't have to travel so much in advance of the Australian Open. In that article that you mentioned about the younger players starting off quick, you mentioned that there's a big difference in terms of return on investment by backing those starting the season in the top 100. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the players, the young players who are 22 or below, and they're already in the top 100, they tend to, to hit the ground running at the, at the start of the subsequent year. So that's again something to keep an eye on for anyone. 100 percent. And, and if, um, if I just get the link up for that, then um, that'll be pretty useful because it'll, I've actually got a link of the current rankings of all the young players as well in in, in the top 100. So. The article that I've written on the website, which is um, tennisratings.co.uk, and of course you can find the posts on and Twitter at tennisrating. General, general tennis articles, and then uh, 2017 young ATP prospects assessment and investment. Then that will tell you. Um, it's got a list of the players who are currently in the top 100, and just going through the list now, there's 12 in the top 100 at the moment. So those 12 are ones to circle potentially for batters looking to get a quick start yeah. on tennis this yeah, year. Yeah, probably with, with the exception of, of Montero, who's very clay-orientated and we're playing hard courts at the start of the season. But the other ones, yeah, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Another thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is this past year, we saw quite a few injuries or issues to some of the top players, mm. which may have resulted in some better-than-expected 
results from many of the players. You wrote about players on the ATP and the WTA you expected to flop or flourish. I can't remember the two words you used, but it was one to look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who were some of the players, just if you can name a couple, uh, that really stood out to you who we can expect to get big results from in 2017 and then also those who you think overperformed in 2016? Sure. So if we look at the ATP Tour, um, there's there's uh, players who have been injury hit. Uh, Juan Monaco, uh, Del Potro, obviously, um, done well when he came back, but he, he was quite limited in the amount of tournaments that he played. Um, those players are still underranked for for their ability, and they they can they can rise more. Though I do understand that, that Del Potro has already uh, said he's not going to play Australian Open, so I don't see that improving in the short term for him. Um, Ryan Harrison played well at the end of last season, and he looks to be quite forcey ranked based on my data, and he's got the potential to be top 50 player, but he's currently ranked at 90. Jeremy Chardy um, still pretty solid, although coming sort of the autumn of his career. Ranked around the 70 mark, but he but he should still be around the, sort of the top 30 mark. Um, and there, there's a couple of young players as well. I definitely want to keep an eye on Karen Kashanov and uh, Daniel Medvedev as well. Two two Russian players who have huge potential as well. Uh, players who I expect to, to get worse in 2017. There's uh, Luca Puy, the French youngster. Uh, ten, he won. Uh, this this sort of opinion flies in the face of a lot of of other other judges. So, it'll be interesting to see where this one ends up. Um, but he won a lot of what I would call high, quite high variance matches last year, where he, where he won a really tight match. And um, I don't really see that being a sustainable. And his whole hold uh, service hold percentages and uh, breaking of opponent percentages indicate that he's he's far from being a top twenty player. Um, Ivo Karlovic is 37, 38 years, eight years of age now and ranked at 20. But my um, my data shows that a rank more around the 50 mark would be appropriate based on his stats. And there's a lot of other older players, Florian Meyer, Stefan Robert, um, Paolo Lorenzi, who are also also look to be ranked a lot higher than where, where, where they should be. And given their age as well, it's quite likely that they're going to decline in 2017. The women's quickly, if we look at that, um, the one player that I expect to really, really uh, drop is Sam Stosa. She's currently ranked at 21, but her stats the last six months of the season were horrific, and I, I can see her dropping out of the top 50 in 2017. Same for Roberta Vinci, really. She She's in the top 20s, and she said she was considering retirement at the end of the season, but but didn't. And she's going to play at least another year, and I think she could drop out of the top 50 as well come come the end of 2017. And also Vinci's doubles partner, Sarah Rani. I mean, her serve was never her strong point, but her serve numbers are just deteriorating rapidly now. And um, she dropped from like 55% service hold in 2015 to 52 in 2016, and I can see her failing to hold at least even 50% of the time in 2017. So basically, there's going to be an advantage for to return against Irani, which is I've never seen with any tennis player uh, with a decent sample size in my whole term, time I've looked at tennis data. So that would be an interesting one as well. Um, women's players who are, who are better than their rankings. Uh, Sabine Nizicki still better player than her ranking, although she's certainly really better ranked about the top 50 mark, but she's down at about 90 at the moment. Um, 
and uh, Yelena Jankovic still has something to offer based on stats as well, but she's just outside the top 50. There's a lot of other youngsters who are sort of flattered to deceive as well, Sloane Stevens being a prime example, but she hasn't played, I don't think, since August, so uh, and she's going to miss the start of the season, I think, as well, so I don't expect that to improve in the short term either. She's ranked at 35, so probably likely she's going to drop out of the top 50 before she actually does improve. It was hard to hold back my laughter when you mentioned Irani. I, anyone who's spent any time in the Betfair markets knows yeah. that even when she gets broken, it, I mean, usually you get a big tick adjustment with her. It's like seven, eight ticks on a good trade, and you're sitting yeah, there wondering the, what the in the world's going really, on. The market really is like fully aware of, of her traits, that's for sure. One more quick note on the WTA. I noticed that Bellis ranks very high in your combined uh, serve and hold percentages. Mm. You mentioned that that's probably because of weaker competition she's faced, just being as good as she yeah. is so young. Now that's that she's fun. she's turned pro, and we can see her first pro season coming up here, it, what do you expect from her, and how do you think the market is going to adjust to uh, her big figures? Has it adjusted enough? Is there going to be value backing her in time to come? I think so. I do think I do think that she's going to re- represent some value in, in the in the near future, at least before um, before the market adjusts to, to how good she actually is and and how good she can be. Again, hopefully we'll see the benefit of the pre-season with her as well, and um, she can hit the ground running at the start of 2017. From what I do understand, um, she may be restricted to the amount of tournaments that she can enter because she's under 18 still. Um, so that may be a slight hurdle for, for from a from a ranking perspective, but but yeah, she's um, she's a massive massive prospect, and I would be amazed if she doesn't make the top ten in at some point in in the in the uh, not not too distant future. Is there someone on the men's side who's similar to being young, just turning pro, coming onto the to the circuit that you kind of have circled as well, somewhat like yeah. Dallas? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, Kashanov and Medvedev, the two Russians, like I said earlier, they're, they're, they, they have really really decent stats and they're just improving pretty much with every tournament that they enter and they, they can be big future players for sure. I spoke about Chorich uh, a lot a couple of years ago. He hasn't really kicked on, but he's still ranked like 40, around 40 in the world and he's still young, about 20 years old. So he's got a lot of improving that he can do. And we've seen, obviously, with with the likes of uh, Alexander Zverev, uh, how he's, he's, he's really um, grown into the ATP Tour this year. And he's someone that I, I, I enjoy uh, trading his matches quite a lot because he, he particularly is, is a player who, who whose stats are conducive to very swingy matches in play. Um, and he's got some magnificent deficit recovery stats. So he's a, he's a player that, that fights until the end and, and comes back from losing positions a lot. So a player like that, you always want to have him on your side. So, yes, I mean, Zverev's shown, shown his ability this year and he's probably going to improve and improve. But like, I do think that, that Kashanov, who, who's catapulted to outside the top 50 of the world from from nowhere a few months ago, and the same with Medvedev, just, just broken the top 100 and he was ranked like 300 in the summer. Their two players are really worth keeping an eye on in the future. I feel like any time I interact with you, I'm, I become instantly smarter. And I'm sure everyone listening will feel the same way after this exchange here in the last 20 minutes. I could keep you here talking all day, and I'm sure my listeners will love it, but I know you have things to do and get on to. Um, so before I let you go, can you make a couple predictions on the Australian Open? Oh. Maybe a player oh, sure. to watch from each side and uh, anything else you can 
you can think of as far from a betting aspect before the tournament begins? Well, um, Australia, the warm-up events tend to be, uh, so, as I said earlier, a bit quite, quite faster courts than, than the actual main main Australian Open tournament. So I wouldn't look at too much at the warm-up events, but obviously we're going we're to want to have a look at some 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 to some extent because obviously the the likes of Nadal haven't played for a long time Federer um so we don't know we don't know what we're going to get from them before the season, the tournament starts but from from a young player's perspective um I, I think that Zverev has got has got a lot of tools to succeed and and also he's a very fit player who has an excellent record in third sets as well in a sort of a standard ATP tournament that's likely to transfer itself to Longer, longer matches in the Grand Slam format as well. So he he should be able to have a have a decent fitness advantage in the fourth and fifth sets. Dominic Team is another player who's who's like that as well. He's got excellent third set record, and uh, I think that in the sort of longer formats of a Grand Slam, he could be another one to keep an eye on in 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 the longer format as well. And although I do feel that that Team's scheduling and he just plays too many tournaments basically, and um, his data still show that he's he's got a lot of improving still to do, but I do think that, that he could be a player who performs better in slams than he does in smaller tournaments ultimately in his career. And anything from the women's side that jumps out to you? The women's side um, is a tough one. It's the women's side, I was, sort of last year or so, when, when Serena Williams hasn't been quite as dominant, um, I always kind of have this feeling that the top 10 are much of a muchness. They're on a given day, they can all beat each other. I certainly don't expect Angelique Kerber to be as dominant as she was in 2016. If we look at my, my hold break combined percentage data uh, in that pinnacle article you referred to earlier with the tops and flops day, uh, uh, article, uh, she's actually only ranked uh, sixth in the combined hold break percentages for 2016. Fifth, if you filter out Bellis of that, which we spoke about the small sample, etc. Um, so you've got Azarenka, who's obviously out of the Australian Open still with, with uh, pregnancy, but Serena Williams, Agnieszka, Vavanska, and Simona Halep all had better data than her in 2016, despite the fact that Kerber was ranked world number one. So those 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 players, I'd expect to um, sort of the, that the Kerber, to, with Kerber, I expect to sort of revert more to the mean in 2017. And um, those players maybe to to get in front of her uh, this 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 year coming. Um, young players coming through. Um, I think Madison Keys might have a decent chance, although typically um, return uh, so serve orientated players don't tend to do that well in Grand Slams due to the accumulated fatigue that they have of playing more, more games per set because they're not winning sets so easily because they don't break their opponents as much as 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 a return orientated player. But I do think that, that, she, that she's improving nicely. Her, her data's just getting better and better. And she could be one to watch for the Australian Open. Um, don't really think that there's that much for her to fear, apart from Serena Williams, if she was to come, if Williams was to come back and, and play at a level that she's, she's been, she's done in the last sort of two or three years. But obviously that's a big if, because we don't know how fit Williams is, what sort of level she's going to have when she comes back. It's a real real unknown, really. So before betters start, or listeners start running to the betting window yeah. to get on all the advice you just get, I encourage them to visit tennisratings.co.uk to pick up any one of your trading sheets. I know you have a lot of different packages on there with different sheets for different mm. strategies and different types of betters. 
We also have a YouTube channel. Yep, yep, yep. Dan Weston, you can check that out on YouTube. Just do a search for the, the channel Dan Weston. And this, there's a lot of articles, betting, trading articles, general tennis articles that you can get on the website as well. So, um, so that's that's obviously useful for for new 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 visitors to the website who haven't haven't read anything. There's there's like fifty sixty articles, and I've also got probably not far of a hundred articles on Pinnacle as well on the betting resources page too. You also have the book Mastering Tennis Trading, which is available yep. iBooks, Amazon, Kindle, yep. eBook, everything you can imagine, paperback, yep. hardcover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then you're also, of course, on Twitter at Tennis Ratings, okay. which is one of the best follows on Twitter for anyone to have. So if you're not uh, following him already, highly recommended. Check out the website. Check out the articles, tennis videos. You'll be doing some content for the Australian Open, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah 100%. That's something to keep an eye on. Dan, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I hope you can come on a couple more times this year to talk about some of the bigger tournaments as we get into the full swing of the season. Yeah. Appreciate your time, and best of luck in 2017. Cheers, Adam, and to you.